you have a Bible and you'd like to, you can turn to the Old Testament to Psalm 119. Continuing our reading through Psalm 119. We come to verses 33 through 40. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding, that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise, that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You can turn to the book of Hebrews. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, and then we'll turn to Westminster Short 22, but before that, join me in prayer. Our Lord, open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. What a treasure it is to have your thoughts, to have your revealed will, and to have our great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, make known to us your will for our salvation by his word and by his spirit. And so we ask that you would extend this gracious ministry to us even now, particularly as we would desire to have Christ exalted before our hearts, have our understandings enlarged in the face of the wonder the mystery of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, the true Son of David, true God and true man, who came down for us, for our salvation, in demonstration of your otherworldly love. Inflame our hearts at this theme. Fill us with joy at the thought that we have been made his. Bind our hearts to him, for we are so prone to wander as foolish sheep when we have been given the good shepherd and shown his riches in the laying down of his life and in the supply of our guidance, our life, and the promise of sharing in his glory when he returns. Have your way among us by your word, even now, for we ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'll read Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18, and then I'll invite you to take a look at Westminster Shorter Catechism 22. Let 
lend your attention. This is the very word of God. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And then Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 22, asks... How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Scripture delights in the mystery of life forming in the womb. Psalm 139 reads thus, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In the novel, Peace Like a River, the narrator opens with gentle indignation at those who use the word miracle a bit too lightly. I'm sorry, but nope, he remarks. Such things are worth our notice every day of the week, but to call them miracles evaporates the strength of the word. Real miracles bother people. The psalmist doesn't technically call birth a miracle. He gets pretty close, though. He uses the word wonder, wonderful, which you'll find glossed in most Hebrew uh, lexicons as miracle. <laughs> he says birth is wonderful. God extending the gift of life to an individual. A specific gift direct from God. God extending care in that utterly vulnerable region of great mystery, the womb. God forming and fashioning the specifics of soul and body further extension of that great gift of his. It really is wonderful if you stop and think about it. So if you were to slip, nudged perhaps by the pure feeling of Psalm 139, and call the formation of life a miracle, I would still probably correct you. <laughs> but I'd be very gentle and understanding. 
But if you were to call Christ's birth a miracle, I'd definitely correct you. I'd say, get your life together. Words have meaning. I'd say the feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle. Lazarus raised from the dead was a miracle. Healing the blind, the deaf, and the lame with a word or a touch or some mud were miracles. The eternal Son of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary is not a miracle. Miracle is not a strong enough word. John Owen writes, The assumption of our nature by the Son of God, the constitution of one and the same individual person in two natures so infinitely distinct as those of God and man, whereby the eternal was made in time, the infinite became finite, the immortal mortal, Yet continuing, eternal, infinite, immortal is that singular expression of divine wisdom, goodness, and power wherein God will be admired and glorified unto eternity. Or, more briefly, as the Apostle Paul writes, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. And Owen adds his yes and amen, writing, a mystery it is, and that of those dimensions as no creature can comprehend. What heart can conceive? What tongue can express the least part of the glory of this divine wisdom and grace on display in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord? Not mine. Not ours, not Owen's, but we can bow in humble adoration, even in these brief moments together, to the revelation of God in the wonder of Jesus Christ, his eternal son, born of a woman in the fullness of time for us and for our salvation. So first... We delight to confess the continuity of the person of the eternal Son. Second, we delight to confess that he is like us in every way, sin accepting. And third, we delight to confess the virgin birth. So first, the continuity of the person. The question opens, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself. That is an odd way to describe a birth. <laughs> Christ, a person, took unto himself something in the historical birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've ever watched a play, you know that characters will come in from off stage. I was just discussing this with one of our members about Hamlet. Hamlet opens with the changing of the guard. Two characters come in, and you're not told exactly what they're doing off stage, but you're led to imagine. Their existence did not commence with their entrance onto the stage. They had traveled to their post. Perhaps they were sleeping as it is the dead of night. The characters enter and join their fellow, and we're just left to wonder, I wonder what they were doing before they came on. 
The amazing part here is that the one entering is entering time. And the one who is entering is the eternal one, the one who is outside of time, who fills all time and yet is not constrained by time. And this is the one who enters onto Earth's stage. The one entering space is the infinite one, the one who fills all space and yet is confined by no space. This one is now in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one commencing an earthly tenure is the one who made heaven and earth, the glorious Son of God. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here, that glimpse of the wonder of the pre-incarnation, the pre-existence of the Son, which turns into or continues with the earthly tenure of the Son. The wonder of the pre-existence is set forth here as being in the form of God, which corresponds quite nicely with that remarkable statement that we consider that Jesus made in John 17, 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The one infinitely exalted in the bosom of the Father, with the Father before all worlds, adored by angels innumerable, whom he made by his word indeed, who made everything through whom all things were made. This is Jesus born of Mary. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son. This is the man from Galilee who walked on this earth. The same sod you tread, taking in the same breath that sustains you. So then, this one who comes on stage does not commence with this appearance, but rather he incorporates a human tenure into his infinite, eternal, and divine person. You can imagine a dinner scene with Jesus and the Twelve. And someone approaches Peter and says, Where is God? Where is the one who is beyond time? Where is the one who is beyond space? Where is the one who gives life to everything? And Peter points across the table. He says, the one embracing John, he's right there. It's Joshua, Ben Joseph. That's him. This is why Paul can extend a comprehensive call to the church unto humility. <laughs> because in our Lord, in the trajectory, in the continuity from an infinitely exalted one, to astonishingly low one, this astonishing depth of condescension that commences with his incarnation, you have an incomprehensible chasm covered. 
One that makes all of our debasements look reasonable by comparison. You can think of the greatest reversals in human history. Nebuchadnezzar turned into a beast of the field. Adonibezek to a thumbless and big toeless state. Even nobler iterations. Jeremiah sinking in the mud in his pit. Elijah on the run and alone on the mountain. Job on his ash heap with broken pot shards. Even more imaginative descents. I've mentioned I'm reading The Once and Future King. It's the story of King Arthur, and young Arthur receives his education at the hand of Merlin, which by and large consists of Merlin turning Arthur variously into a fish, a hawk, an owl, and a badger. The movement from human being to animal is more conceivable it's more comprehensible than the eternal Son of God becoming man in the fullness of time. There's a continuity in the person, the one who is infinitely exalted with the Father in his pre-incarnation state and the post-incarnation person. Christ, the Son of God, became man, the one who made all things, uphold all things. This very one took unto himself a true body and a reasonable soul, which is our next consideration. He is like us in all things, sin accepted. The question goes on, by taking unto himself a true body and a reasonable soul. You can recall our passages from Hebrews 2. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Flesh and blood here is simply shorthand for true human nature. This is our nature set forth in the terms of flesh and blood. You can mark the specifics of this language in the answer. A true body and a reasonable soul. It's really a product of the church's reflection on what it means that Jesus was a true, he truly was human. He truly partook of our nature. And these two specific instances, a true body and a reasonable soul, are set forth as what it means to be human. <laughs> this is what it means to be human, to have a true body and a reasonable soul. Furthermore, these are direct refutations of errors that had variously assaulted the church in terms of the doctrine of Christ's person. These errors, in one sense, sought to magnify the wonder that Jesus Christ is true God. But, in so doing, they compromised the plain witness of Scripture that he is true man, and indeed must be true man, to accomplish the salvation of men. So when it insists that Jesus Christ took unto himself a true body, it has in mind that error of the church, that error that confronted the church called docetism. When the Catechism says that Christ, the Son of God, took to himself a true body, it has in view the error that says he only seemed to be material. He only seemed to be flesh and blood. It's just an appearance but not the truth. It's like, it's like a mirage. 
You're walking through the desert, and the image of water, of an oasis, appears before you. But when you get close up, you realize that it's just an illusion. It's the figment of your imagination. So this error says the body of Christ is. The fact that he was material was simply an illusion. He can't be material because he's God, and God is a spirit. But you can think of those places in Scripture where it plainly sets forth that Christ has a true body. He sits by the well, conversing with the woman in Samaria in John 4. He's tired. He's thirsty. These are true needs of a physical body, besetting him as they beset us. In fact, this is the astonishing backdrop to the son's faithfulness in his desert temptation. He was bodily exhausted in every way. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was likely incredibly uncomfortable and beset with aches and pains. And so you can think of the pain that he experienced on the cross when he was struck in the face. Did it hurt? When the thorns pierced his head, was there blood? These were not the appearance of pains taking place in what appeared to be a body. This was true pain besetting a true man being born in our stead. We've had some real physical trials take place among us in our congregation, haven't we? Now, undoubtedly, all of us are going to suffer bodily in some degree or another, at some time or another. We have a Savior who has traveled the full spectrum of human pain because he took unto himself a true body. He is near unto us in our physical sufferings, such that we can know his nearness acutely in those times of physical duress, ache, sleeplessness, and agony. And his compassion burns for us, not as a disinterested party, but as one who has suffered mightily. As a parent, you extend compassion to your children and all sorts of different capacities. But seeing them beset with a pain that you yourself have experienced and knowing that that same pain is besetting their little bodies causes your heart to burn. It causes your compassion to swell. The Lord Jesus Christ knew our pains. He bore our pains for he had a true body. But he also had a reasonable soul. This is against that error which held that Jesus Christ had a true body, but in the place of the soul, there stood the divine logos. There was no human soul. It was simply the divine logos that was animating Christ's flesh. The objection to this that the church lodged was then, well, then he's not a true human being. Because what it means to be human is to have a material and an immaterial element. We are body-soul composites. We are neither chiefly bodies nor chiefly souls. Rather, we are in souled bodies or in fleshed souls. That is what it means to be human. That is human nature. And you can think of those episodes in the life of Christ where the aches 
of his spiritual life thrash him as they thrash us. He shows righteous anger when he sees his father's house desecrated and turned into a den of thieves. He shows righteous anger with James and John when they want to call down fire from heaven on an unsuspecting town. Our Lord is no stoic. These things elicit from him the appropriate and holy response from his soul. Indeed, the fulfilling of the law is summed up as what? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. This he fulfilled on our behalf. He shows griefs, pangs of soul in the face of Lazarus's death and the grief that was besetting his own community. He's constantly moved with compassion during his earthly ministry, seeing the people and considering them like sheep without a shepherd, and his heart inclines towards them. Or the Garden of Gethsemane, where the prospect which stood before him was enough to yield drops of blood sweating from his forehead. So deep was the anguish of soul that he was experiencing. Everything that we are as in fleshed souls or in souled bodies, Jesus was only sin accepting, which is our further delight. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is remarkable. For one truly only experiences the full power of something if one has been brought all the way through it. We throw in the towel very early in our temptations, do we not? The Lord Jesus Christ experienced the full onslaught of them being brought all the way through them as one who never gave in <coughs> to that pressure. The glory of our Lord is here on display in his triumph through the difficulties assaulting the body and soul as the life of man. Think how often our own pains are the occasion for sin. Think how often our own grief, agony, pains in the spiritual life are the occasion for sin. Grumbling, complaining, seeking that which can be no balm or supply for what we're experiencing. The Lord Jesus Christ has known our pains, but he knew no sin. Righteousness was maintained throughout the entire course of his life of suffering. And for this reason, he is qualified and able and willing to extend to us the grace and mercy of which we are in so desperate need. So what better exhortation could there be in the face of this than verse 16 of chapter 4 in Hebrews? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, where our high priest is seated. Confidence because he is like us and able to sympathize because he has known our pains intimately. But also confident because he has triumphed over the temptations that come with pain. And thus he is able to extend that which is necessary to endure well through pain. In fact, he alone is the one who can supply this. Mark the great encouragement 
there is for the church here. So often we feel misunderstood in our temptations. So often we feel abandoned in our uh, temptations. The doctrine of Christ plainly states that not only are you not abandoned, you are most intimately understood and welcomed at the only place where there is a reasonable reasonable supply of the very thing you need to endure in faith and hope and love, regardless of what is assaulting you, body or soul. This is the glory of Jesus Christ on display as we draw near unto him to receive what only he can supply. And last, we delight in the virgin birth. This is how the question ends. Conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew cites Isaiah 7.14, which reads in its original, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. You can hear all the essential ingredients of the doctrine of Christ's person in that very statement. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. True man. And he shall be called Emmanuel. Which means God with us. True God. But what I want to point out is the fact that the virgin birth in the Isaiah passage is called a sign. Donald McClaude, I think that's how you pronounce his name. My apologies if it's not. He suggests three ways in which the virgin birth is a sign. And the first of which is the only one I want to draw attention to. He says it's a sign in that it highlights the essentially supernatural character of Jesus and the gospel. He writes, The virgin birth stands on the threshold of the New Testament. Blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding further. Owen is right to highlight the chief wonder of the incarnate word, but everything that follows from the incarnate word is too wonderful for words. We confess that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that because Matthew and Luke explicitly say that. (laughs) We do not believe that because we comprehend that. It is a grand mystery over which even Scripture itself draws a veil. As the angel announces to Mary that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And he shall be called holy, for he shall be born of the Holy Ghost. There's not much you can say beyond the wonder that the virgin conceived and this was of God. This was the doing of the Wonderful One. I can barely comprehend how my limbs were knit together, how my immaterial and material substance commenced in the dark waters of my mother's womb. Here we have something that exceeds that by an infinite degree. Luke 1.35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Not only was the woman a virgin, 
Not only was the holy influence bringing forth life in her, both in something new of the human nature prepared and in the entrance this afforded into time and space for the pre-existent Son of God. The wonders which took place there are too high, too wonderful, and too numerous to identify and comprehend. And that seems to be the point McLeod is making in calling the virgin womb a sign. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Make no mistake. Christianity does not call us to put aside our minds. It calls us to exercise our minds. But at the same time, Christianity disdains justifying itself at the fallen bar of man's reason. As if the only things that can be are what have been. The only things that can be are what we can comprehend. Perish the thought. In fact, God seems to take a holy delight in offending human fallen reason. Isn't that what Paul says? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Virgin birth is impossible. That's foolish. Yeah, that's kind of what he does. Having it here at the commencement of the gospel narratives prepares the heart for greater wonders, for gifts that are rich and indescribable and incomprehensible, but it also shows us what's necessary to enjoy it. A heart that postures itself in humble awe, that receives what God is willing to give and says, your name be praised. Let's pray. Ooh. Father, your ways are wonderful. How vast, how immeasurable your wisdom and your power and your goodness on display in the Lord Jesus Christ as you sent forth your son born of a woman born under the law Father may we never tire of considering your glory on display in Jesus Christ in who he is and what he's done and what he will do when he returns for us to bring to completion those blessings which he brought to pass by his wonderful life and death, resurrection and ascension. Cause our hearts to marvel, O Lord. It is difficult for us to rise in the consideration, and yet you are one who condescends to meet us, to raise us up. We ask that you would be pleased to do this very thing, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I'll invite you